If you're visiting today, I want to say welcome, uh, and we're grateful that you chose to join us uh, this morning for worship, uh, especially on this uh, nice and rainy Sunday. But praise the Lord, we get to worship uh, together, and so here we are. Uh, we're in a, a, the middle of a series that we've called uh, "The Fullness of Christ in Devotion." Sorry, "The Fullness of Joy and Devotion to Christ," uh, and it's a study through the book of First John. We have made it all the way into uh, chapter 2. So we'll be in 1 John chapter 2. We'll look at verses 12 through 14 in just a moment. Um, but I want to kind of introduce this passage. What's happening here is John is going to transition for a moment into some encouragements. And this passage in particular is about the church as a whole and its maturing faith. In other words, the, the maturing faith of the believer's within these congregations. And so John has already said some really difficult things in this book, 1 John, in this letter, uh, and there's more still to come. I mean, next, next week is going to be uh, not, not only could it challenge us, but it's going, to, it's going to push us in the right directions toward maturity. It's going to further show what Christian maturity looks like as he begins to introduce that here in, in this passage today. But some of the things we've seen already... 1 John 1, 6, uh, he wrote there, If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. And verse John, uh, two verses later, he said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This means that no one can say that they are without sin. And in case that was unclear, he went ahead and said in verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and His Word is not in us. And so he's, he's getting to the heart of really what the opponents that he's facing were doing. These who had left them and gone out of their assembly and begun to proclaim uh, a bunch of false things about God and what it looks like to be in fellowship with God or to know God. And he lays these things out in such a way that uh, these believers would be uh, seeing these claims, these people were claiming to be without sin. They're claiming to have no sin. They're claiming to walk in the light while they're really walking in the darkness. And so John is just pointing those things out. But he's pointing those things out with warning, right? It's you should not become these people. We must see this in these people so that we uh, do not become like them. And so he also goes on to encourage believers. He encouraged them in the first, uh, especially in the first four verses of First John, but in, in the first three verses of chapter 2, he writes this, and it's really written, he starts with the phrase, my little children, uh, which you'll see again today, and, and I'll explain it a little more, but he, he's writing as a father who would encourage his own children. So it's with fatherly encouragements here, and I, I hope that you have some sense of what it's like to grow up with a father who encourages, but if you don't, uh, just know that God has uh, become a father to the fatherless, amen, and that he uh, draws near to you to encourage you with such encouragements. And he also puts in our midst, as we'll see today, men who are like fathers for us. So whether or not you grew up in this, you get to see this and you get to experience this. You get to know this kind of uh, intimacy from a father to his child. But he writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the payment for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So you see, they're just fatherly encouragements. We have, if we do sin, we should not sin, but if we do sin or when we do sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the very son of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous is with him on our behalf. And so we uh, talked through those. Uh, and then he goes on to further admonish these children of God. He pleads with them to show themselves to be true believers by walking in the light of God's love. I'm just trying to show you uh, some of the arcs of what we've been looking at over the last few weeks. In 1 John 2, 9 through 11, he, which is what we looked at last week, he said, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness 
has blinded his eyes. And so now John turns back to, in verse 12, gospel encouragements. John turns back to uh, these gospel encouragements to the children of God, and he desires for these believers to have assurance of faith. And these assurances of faith, what we're going to see in this passage, is these assurances of faith are seen through their maturing faith. So if you would, would you stand to your feet this morning? As we read the word of the Lord, I'll, I'll conclude with, this is the word of the Lord, and you will say, thanks be to God. 1 John 2, verse 12 through 14. I want you to notice in your word, probably in the formatting there, that these appear uh, poetic. I think John does this on purpose. I think he sets it off on purpose. So let's read these words. 1 John 2, 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter that John has written, uh, that we might study it, we might learn from it, we might hear uh, these words, which are uh, the words of eternal life for us. They are written to teach us and to instruct us and to uh, rebuke us where we need it, to correct us and to train us for all godliness, that we too might become mature. And so we ask, Lord, that as we read these scriptures today, as we hear them taught, would you give us hearts that are open to receive your word? Would you mold our hearts to be good soil by your spirit, that as the word is preached and proclaimed today, that it would be like a seed planted deep in our hearts, which bears fruit in all of life until our final breath, Lord. May these words instruct us unto obedience, instruct us unto love, instruct us unto uh, a deeper knowledge of who you are and your love for us and the way that you are moving and uh, the way that you are active in our lives. My Lord, it is our desire to know you more fully, that we might glorify you and more faithful uh, by more faithful living each day. But we thank you that you have moved upon us by your spirit and that we are recipients of grace and so we ask now for the grace uh, that sanctifies. Would you train us now? In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So in this brief passage here, these three verses, John uses this phrase, I'm writing to you, or I have written to you, six times. And he does this to emphasize his message to these believers, he, those who are truly a part of God's family. This is who he has in mind here. And we know this because he begins with this phrase, little children, once again. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, I have uh, in study just kind of set this off as an introductory statement before he launches into what I think are encouragements unto Christian maturity. And so, uh, we'll look at those things as, as we go through this, but John is writing, what is clear here in this introductory statement is that John is writing to believers, right? He says, I, I write to you, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Whose sins are forgiven? Well, the, the little children. Who are the little children of God? None other than the ones that he has saved by his marvelous grace, Amen. But I want you to notice again that the term, little children, he begins another section of encouragement uh, with this phrase, little children. Now, John is likely old in years. He, he is aged, thought to be in uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and so really, he can write in such a way that everyone is like a child to him, right? Uh, he, he has reached that age where he can do so. But we know that from, especially in the way that he describes little children here, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake, he has in mind more than just age 
He has in mind in particular a certain standing before God, that you have become the children of God, which is a a great emphasis in John's gospel as well. And so uh, John is showing these believers, after all of these encouragements or discouragements from sin and encouragements unto right living, that you would walk in the light and not walk in the darkness, John is uh, encouraging believers here to understand that you are those who have been who have had their sins forgiven for his name's sake. Amen. It's a, it's a reassurance of faith. He's assuring them that you belong. And so this term, little children, literally means my dear child. And he writes with that sort of affection, my, my dear son, my dear daughter, right? He, he's entreating his audience to listen closely to these encouragements. As a father, it's one of my joys to get the opportunity to do this with my own children, to to tell them in, in certain words, right? My dear son, listen to me. Pay attention to these words. Hear the instruction of the father, you know? Hear the instruction of your father, uh, which goes out to you and entreating you to listen to these things. And that's what's happening here. John is writing in such a way that he's saying, listen to these words, my little children, hear these words. So this term is used here in 1 John at least six times. And it appears often in the scriptures to describe the children of God. Again, in John 13, 33, we have Jesus using the same phrase. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus Christ addresses his people, little children. In Galatians chapter 4, we have Paul writing. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Later, just a few verses later there in Galatians 4, he does it again. He says, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So he's writing about, just as John is writing, about their stance before the Father, that you are children of the Father. He's making it clear that he's addressing the true offspring of God, which are all genuine gospel believers. It's that whosoever believes, right? These are the ones who have believed. They are God's people. And then there are only two spiritual families, to be sure, that exist from God's perspective. There are children of God, and there are children of Satan. There is no in-between. We do not live in a world where there is an in-between. Children of God do not love Satan's family. Children of God do not pledge their allegiance to this world. We're going to see more about that next week in verse 15, where John writes, do not love the world or the things of the world. And so there's a certain allegiance that we should pledge ourselves to, which is not to this world, but to our God. And so the children of God grow as they've pledged their allegiance and a sense to God as God has bought them with the marvelous grace that he has poured out through Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And he has birthed in them new life by the Spirit of God. He has purchased a people for his very own possession. And these people are believers and they are growing in Christ likeness, but they're growing at varying degrees and varying rates right? You've seen this maybe in your own life where there have been moments that you have grown at rapid speed in spiritual things. You, You have grown quickly over seasons. You have come to see new truths in new ways very fast. And then there are times where it feels as though heaven is silent towards you and you are just plodding along and it's a treacherous road and you don't see any growth You wonder if your prayers are reaching past the ceiling, right? You have these moments of difficulty. But this is the way grace grows. It grows at varying degrees and varying rates inside of God's people. And so the children of God grow in their love for the Lord. They're growing in their love for the Lord. This will be seen, and it's seen in, as we've seen throughout the book so far, it's seen in wholehearted obedience. That those who love God, obey his commandments. They live a life that evidences such faith. And so all believers, no matter their respective maturity, 
have been forgiven of their sins. That is what he's laying out here. You have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. The truth, this truth rather, is foundational for the evangelistic message of the church. Christ did say, after all, in Luke 24, 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, which is exactly what the apostles did. Began in Jerusalem, goes out to Judea and to Samaria, and here we are watching the gospel grow to the ends of the earth, just as Christ said it would, right? But it's the forgiveness of sins Uh, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins that we proclaim in the name of Christ to all the nations. And so John reminds his believers here that God grants forgiveness to sinners, but he does it. Why? Does it say there that he does it for their own kingdom building? No. Does he do it that their name might be great on the earth? No. No. Does he do it so that they might be able to pat themselves on the back and say, look at how awesome I am? No, I don't see that phrase there either. What does he say? He says, your sins have been forgiven for what? For his name's sake. For his name's sake. It's not because of your own worthiness. It's not because of your own good works. It's not because you've saw fit to clean yourself up. Right? I've heard this for many years. You all have as well. I'll, I'll go to church. I'll get my life right when I can get some things in order first. Well, that's backwards thinking. That's not how this works. Right? You'll never get your life right, so to speak, apart from Christ Jesus. It's impossible. It's impossible. And God does this. He forgives sinners, and He loves to forgive sinners for the sake of his own name, for the glory of his own name, for the renown of his name in all the earth, so that sinners, now forgiven, may proclaim to the ends of the earth the glory of Christ Jesus. We don't run to the ends of the earth proclaiming, I have saved myself from my sins. Listen to this message that I have. No. We run to the ends of the earth proclaiming, I have been saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ from my sins. Amen? Listen to this message that I proclaim. It's what Paul writes when he says, we proclaim him and him crucified. We proclaim Christ and him crucified. This is our message. This is what we say is for his namesake. And this is really just a direct reference to the glory of God as opposed to the glory of man. These false teachers are going out, and as it is with all false teachers, they're about their own glory. I have not sinned. We know God. We walk in the light. There is no sin in us, right? Who are they proclaiming? It's we, and it's I, and it's me, and it's us, right? Look at us. This is a message that's about the glory of God opposed to the glory of man. The glory of God is the overarching reason for why God does every single thing that he does. It's about his own glory in the earth. God forgives sinners because it pleases him to glorify his name by manifesting his abundant grace and mercy and power in the forgiveness of sins. This is what he does. He does it because he loves his glory, and he loves to save sinners so that they might glorify him. And so believers are those recipients of forgiving grace. Believers are those who have been saved from their sins, and now they will forever praise and glorify the God of heaven and earth as the one who has saved them. And yet they'll do so in relation to their own maturing faith. It's going to look different for each believer in the way that they proclaim the the saving grace of God and the way that they live it out and the way that they relate to God and the way that they're growing. It's going to look different. Yet they have saving faith. That's what he's saying here. Your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake, little children. 
but it's going to carry out distinguishing characteristics, and that's what he's going to get into. But what I need you to know is that these displays of maturing faith offer great assurances for believers no matter what what stage of faith you're in, what stage of maturity you find yourself in. And this is what John wants us to understand. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. A maturing faith provides assurances of faith for believers along the way. A maturing faith provides assurances of faith for believers along the way. First thing we see here is God's assurance for spiritual children. God's assurance for spiritual children. 1 John 2, 13. Look at the C part of that verse. He says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, this term here for children is different than the one that we saw in verse 12 a moment ago. This term here means young child. It's it's a statement of age. Those who are still under, denotes those who are still under parental care. And so he has in mind, John has in mind here, those who are new to the faith. And what he's saying is that such believers are recipients of God's grace towards sinners, and they have begun their life in Christ, right? He says, I write to you children because you know the Father. They're growing. They know the Father. They've come to see Him. However, they are ignorant, and they are immature, and they are in need of care and guidance. There is much to learn, and there is much to grow in. There is much care that is needed. There is much discipleship to take place. That's what he's saying. They need to be discipled. These children do, however, know the Father. They know the Father in the same way that an infant has basic knowledge of his parents or her parents. You can see it in a child who is very young, the way their eyes will light up when they see mama or when they see daddy. Right? They understand from a very early age who is taking care of them. They understand from a very early age who is tending to them, who is nourishing them. And little children, spiritually speaking, know the same thing. They know that I go to God for nourishment and care and strength. I know God because God has made himself known to me. I know God because he has called me to himself and he has given me new life in Christ. I have new desires to get to know God because of his work in my life, right? There's an acknowledgement here. They do know the Father, and they know the Father in a way uh, like an infant does. But spiritual children are consumed with this new relationship that they've come to know. They know God's peace. They know God's joy through the salvation that he has granted to them, but they are still children in the faith. There's still much to learn, much to grow in. They have yet to feast on the nourishing spiritual meat of sound doctrine. They are, as we see in the New Testament, feasting on milk, which is precisely what they need. This is not a derogatory thing. This is not a statement of uh, their lack of something at all. It's a statement of they're, they're, they've, they've come to be children of God by his grace, and so their, their desires are in the right place, and God is growing them. And as we see with babies, spiritual children are prone to weaknesses. They're prone to weaknesses because they are spiritually immature. There's things that the Lord is working on the inside of them by his spirit. He'll use the community of faith for these things. He'll use the proclaimed word for these things. He'll use prayer for these things, right? It'll happen in all sorts of ways, but they're being made mature, but they are prone to weaknesses. They're highly susceptible to the devil's dangers. There are things that the devil would like to do to them, that he would still kill, destroy them, and so they're susceptible to such things, such errors because they're often motivated still by fleshly desires. 
There are things in them that they have not yet put away. There may be many things that have been put away and just a miraculous, supernatural new birth, things that they don't, that they used to desire, they no longer desire. But they're still working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. They're growing in these things, right? And so there's much to learn. There's still fleshly desires to be put away. There's still things that they don't realize. This is my flesh versus this is the spirit alive in me because they lack discernment. They need more discernment in their pursuits. They often pursue what is harmful to them rather than pursuing what is good for them because they don't yet know these things. This is why churches that do not practice discipleship, do not make a point to be discipling believers, are doing a massive disservice to new converts. But even more than that, they're disobeying Christ. Amen? Because they're not fulfilling the Great Commission. It is not the Great Commission to go and proclaim the gospel such that you have converts who are baptized. No, it says to go and make what? Disciples. So people come to believe and they are baptized and then they are what? Taught. Taught to obey the commands of Christ Jesus. Taught to walk in the way of the Lord. Taught. Taught by who? Other believers. Pastors. Teachers. Mature men and women in the faith. The community of faith needs this. Churches have to be about this business. Otherwise, you have a bunch of spiritual children running around who are going to be tossed to and fro by the waves of cunning doctrine and deceit. Snares will be laid for them by the devil that they'll happily fall into, thinking that they're pursuing wise things. You see this in churches across the world, but especially here in the United States. People who are more concerned with having their ears tickled, enjoying a 10 to 15 minute, uh, calling in a sermon would be too kind. TED Talk is a better word. Uh, that tickles their ears and encourages them, here's three steps to a better life. Here's four steps to a, a happier marriage. Here's three ways to be a more faithful giver. Right? It's just all about little bitty things, and it's all about building the brand of such churches. We must be careful not to do this. We make disciples of Christ, not disciples of New Life Community Church not disciples of Kyle Jones or Alan Garrett or Steve Atkinson or James Jones or uh, Jasper Jack, right? We're, we're making disciples of Jesus Christ here. This is what we're after. And together, we all work to this end. We have to be helping spiritual children come to see the things of God more clearly, that they might follow him more faithfully. We must preach sound doctrine is what I'm saying. But we must practice it also. We must live it out. We must have sound doctrine that produces sound lives. Amen. For more on that, you can read the book of Titus. This is especially true of false doctrines. Those deceivers and heretics who are often seeking out spiritual children. They're looking for the ones who don't know better. And they're preying on them. You see this with the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, so-called gospel. It's a preying on people who do not know any better. Ephesians 4, 14 through 15. We, a couple of verses earlier, you see that Jesus Christ gave to the church apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists so that we may no longer be children. They're to equip the, uh, the saints for the work of the ministry so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Amen. Mature believers, one of the things that we can do for those who are spiritually immature, is to applaud their love for the Lord. It's to be grateful that the Lord has birthed in them a desire to know Him and to love Him and to follow Him. Spiritual children are often devoted to God. 
They have a desire to know more about him, to know more about the faith, to grow in doctrine. They want to know these things. But mature believers cannot leave them in that. They must teach and train and educate. They must warn against the dangers of being led astray by the teachers, uh, by false teachers and their demon-inspired doctrines. Satan wants to destroy such young ones. In, second, uh, in the book of 2 John, verses 10 and 11, John writes there, he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. In other words, if anyone comes to you with something other than the gospel of Christ, do not receive them. A maturing faith provides assurances of faith for believers along the way. That's what we're seeing here. Second, we see God's assurance for spiritual young men. I'm using the phrase young men because that's what he uses here. Obviously, he has spiritually, uh, spiritual young women in mind as well. This, this is a maturing faith. It's a faith that is for men and women. Amen. But 1 John 2, 13, the B part, he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. In verse 14, the B part, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil. And so he's laying out for us what the second stage of spiritual growth looks like. This stage takes believers from an emphasis on the basic relationship to an emphasis on biblical revelation. While spiritual children are primarily focused on devotion to God, these spiritual young men have advanced to be concerned with the clarity of doctrine. We want to know the right things about God. We know God. We've come to know Him because He has moved upon us and our desire is for Him. But now we want you to teach us what is right about Him. You see the difference happening here. There's a growth taking place. These maturing believers are marked by an understanding of Scripture truths. They're saying we want to know these things. They're learning these things but they're learning them in such a way that they're now applying them to their lives and they're living them out. It is, as the psalmist says in Psalm 1, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119, one of the greatest chapters in all the scriptures. We read over and over again things like this, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. You see the psalmist's love for the Lord there. Love for not simply the Lord, but his word. He knows God, but he is coming to know, and even more fully, the word of God. And it's changing him. It's transforming him. You see, spiritual young men are outgrowing childish selfishness. They're not concerned about their feelings. They're moving beyond the elementary struggles that are often associated with new Christians, and they're walking in maturity. They have a biblical worldview. Their theology is largely in place. They're happy to learn these things. They're not afraid of words like theology and doctrine. They're saying, give it to me. Let me learn these things. They have a mature love for the truth. They have a desire to proclaim it and to defend it, which is wonderful because I think young men and young women are particularly, spiritually speaking, are particularly wired for such things to love the Word of God, to proclaim the Word of God, to defend the Word of God. Now, these things are talking about spiritual stages, which can happen at any point in a person's life. But they do pertain well to the natural order of how God, has, uh, how God advances people in age as well. You think about young men and young women and what they're doing in their lives. That can be whatever ages you decide, but these young men and young women are becoming uh, husbands, 
and wives. They're becoming fathers and mothers. They're gaining careers. They're doing things that the Lord has called them to do. They're gaining a, a deeper sense of what the Lord has wired them for, right? And so they desire now, how do I come to know God more fully that I might apply God more fully in my life? How do I live these things out week in and week out, right? They're asking these questions. We're seeing this across our own church. Praise the Lord young men and young women who are serious about their faith, who are desiring to know the Lord, who are desiring to come to understand doctrine and theology more faithfully. Now, I don't believe this is motivated by people who want large heads. I think it's motivated by people who want to have large hearts. Amen? But that's, again, where the community of faith comes in to help. If your head's becoming too large, we'll pop that thing, right? We'll help you. We want large hearts, not large heads. We want your knowledge of the Lord to grow. We want your knowledge of doctrine to grow so that your heart grows alongside it. Amen? That you rightly know how to apply these things. He says of them that the word of God abides in you. The Word of God abides in those who are at this stage. And what he means by that is that you are strong. So why are you strong? Is it because you lift, bro? No, but I'm not against that either. But you're strong, you're spiritually strong because the Word of God abides in you. Let us not give ourselves more to physical strength than to spiritual strength. Paul says that we must train ourselves for godliness because physical strength is fleeting and fading away. It gains a perishable crown, whereas spiritual strength gains an imperishable crown kept in heaven for you. So we want to make sure we're applying ourselves to the right things, which is doctrinal truth. Psalm 119.99, the psalmist writes there, he says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation." You see, this is a beautiful thing about the Word of God. We, we have teachers, and we want teachers. We want pastors and teachers around here. We want people who are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and the doctrine that they proclaim. But we understand, too, that the Holy Spirit is alive in you, and as you meditate on the Word of God, as you read the Word of God, you will grow in your understanding of the Word of God by the Spirit of God. Amen? Praise God. This is not Roman Catholicism. You do not need me to be your priest explaining to you all of these things and that this is the only way you'll come to know. No, I want a Bible in the hand of every one of you, and I want you to understand how to read the Scriptures so that you might be equipped for every good work. Amen? That's our job as pastors and teachers around here. And it is to proclaim sound doctrine so that we might guard against false doctrine. We must do those things. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, this is our conviction that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, therefore, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. And that's what we begin to see here. He says that the Word of God abides in you, that you are strong and you have overcome the evil one. Spiritual young men and women have victories in their rearview mirror. They're able to look back and to see the faithfulness of God at work in their lives as they stand on the Word of God, as they've trusted the Word of God, as they've stood strong in the things of the Word. They can look back and see where the wind came and beat against their house, and the storm raged, and yet they stood strong because they trusted the words of Christ, who has said, if you will build your house upon the words that I say, the words that I teach, it will stand. It's not like building your house on sand. And so you can look in your rearview mirror, you can see that you weren't tossed to and fro by the winds any longer. Maybe you had a history of that. Maybe there was some of that in your past, right? As a as a spiritually immature person. But now you're growing and you see where you're standing firm on the truths of God. This is important 
after all, because Satan's greatest deceptions rest not on temptation to sin, which we often say, and, and make no mistake, he wants to tempt you to sin, but temptation to sin, as we see in James, the book of James chapter 1, the temptations to sin come from your own sinfulness, your own sinful desires. They're birthed in you by things that you want, the things that you desire to pursue. And so how are those things put away? Well, they're put away by the Spirit of God as you encounter the Word of God and you come to believe those things and you confess your sin. You confess these evil desires to God and He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And so He's growing you. But Satan, Satan wants to work through false teachings. Satan's greatest work is through false proclamations that might appear true. He wants to stir up doubts in you. He wants to stir up doubts about God. He wants to stir up doubts about his word so that he might deceive the world and lead us astray. We know this from the very moment that Satan enters the picture in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 when he approaches the woman and he says to her, did God actually say? What's he raising? Questions, doubt. God doesn't want you to eat that because he knows that you'll be like him when you do. Now you doubt the goodness of God. Not only have you doubted his word, now you doubt whether or not he's even good. You understand what's happening. This is the same way Satan moves today. He wants to cause doubts. He wants to cause doubts in the things that you've been called to do or called to believe, called to follow. But spiritual young men and women, these are those who are poised. They're ready for the fight. They're equipped with the understanding of Scripture, and they're excited to stand firm against Satan's deceptions. These spiritual young men and women are armed with sound doctrine that they've been taught by faithful pastors and teachers and faithful uh, mature believers, which we'll see more about in just a second. And so then they are able to refute error. They're able to guard the truth. They're saying, we believe, and so therefore we must proclaim. Amen. A maturing faith provides assurances of faith for believers along the way. I love what he gets to next, God's assurance for spiritual fathers. God's assurance for spiritual fathers. In verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. In verse 14, he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And so there's this coming to know the eternal God. This is the final stage of spiritual maturity, is becoming spiritual mothers and fathers. These men and women do not merely understand doctrine intellectually. It's not just that they've grown to understand these things, but they've truly come to know him by practicing these things. They're living them out. They've tested the doctrines to see if they're true, and they have come out saying, it's true, it's true, praise God Almighty, it's true. They've come to know God, who is the source of all truth, but he is the object of all worship. That's what John aims to show in these verses. He's, he's saying spiritual fathers have meditated on the depths of God's character, but they've done so to an extent that they have gained a deep knowledge of him. They've gained a deep worship of him. He's saying these mature saints, in a sense, have come full circle. It began about having a relationship with God. Your sins are forgiven. You know God. But now their Christian lives... They emphasize their relationship with an eternal God who has been from the beginning. And so the relationship is remarkably fuller. It's richer because it is completely informed by, it is completely anchored to the comprehensiveness of biblical doctrine. They have lived a life as a young man and young woman, and they've tested these things, and now they're arriving at spiritual fatherhood. Think about Job in this. I think about Job and his experience of severe trials. He came to this deep knowledge of God, this understanding of who God is. 
Now, Job is an interesting, it's an interesting story in, in, the, in the scriptures. Job is uh, introduced as one who is offering sacrifices and praying for his children that their sins may not be held against them. We come to learn uh, that he is a wise man who fears God, who is devoted to the Lord. And then we're introduced to this part of the story that really blows our minds, that Satan appears before heaven's courts, and God looks at him and says, where have you been, what are you doing? He says, I've been roaming the earth as you have made me to do. And he's taken notice of Job, and God says that there's nothing you could do to Job that would cause him to renounce faith, to curse me. And Satan says, well, I'd like to try. And so God allows Satan to try. He takes his children, all of them, in a day, in a moment. He takes all of his cattle, his livestock, all of his crops, his food, his home. His wife is so upset about it, she comes to Job and she says, Job, 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 why don't you just get over this? Just curse God and die. And Job says, no, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil also? He says, naked I came into the world and naked I shall go. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's amazing. And so Job is a man right out of the gate who is seen in him. He, he's got deep faith. I mean, I mean he trusts the Lord fully. And then Satan afflicts him with these boils. And he's sitting on a heap of ashes and his friends come to him and they begin to entreat him. And he gets to this place where he is now having to defend himself against his friends who think the only way that something like this could happen to someone like you is that there has to be hidden sin. There's got to be something in your life that would cause God to be angry with you and to execute his justice on you in this way. And Job just continues, no, there's nothing. But then he begins to question God himself. He begins to inquire of things until God finally appears to him. And he tells Job to dress for action like a man. <laughs> and then he just begins to say, Job, where were you when I laid the world's foundations? Where were you when I set the borders of the sea? Where were you when I fed young lions in the field? Where were you when I created Leviathan to swim in the ocean's deeps? Breathe fire. Where were you, Job, when I hung the sun, the moon, the stars? Where were you when I created the days and the seasons? Where were you? Where were you? He never once answers Job's questions, and now Job can't answer his either. And we read in Job 42 that Job's understanding of God changes. He said, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Hmm. Job's repenting of his incomplete, immature view of God that he held earlier in his life. That much is clear. But what I want you to understand in this is that part of becoming a spiritual father or mother is about standing on the truths as spiritual young men and young women in the midst of great suffering. That God means for you, means for you to grow through trials. 
He means for you to grow through sufferings. And anything that comes to you in the form of a trial or suffering, or persecutions for that matter, all have come by the hand of the Lord and are meant for your growth. It's quite amazing, really. This is why Joshua, the, or not Joshua, sorry, Joseph is at the end of Genesis in chapter 50. After all that he's been through, sold by his brothers into slavery, he spent time in prison, uh, he's been wrongly accused of sexual harassment. I mean, he has been through the ringer. And then he's able to interpret a dream, and he ends up as Pharaoh's right-hand man. And he's placed over all of the crops of the land uh, in the middle of extreme drought. And he says to his brothers who have come to him, and they realize now he's revealed himself to his brothers. His brothers are repentant. He is going to kill us now that their father has died. He's like, he's going to kill us. He's got no reason to let us live. We have been terrible to him. And he looks at them. He says, what you meant for my harm, God has meant for my good. And for the salvation of many. You understand there's a meaning what Satan means for your harm, God means for your good. It's not that God turns it and does something good with it. It's that Satan can only act in a way that God has allowed him to act. He is bound, you understand. So any trial or tribulation, any suffering or any persecution that comes your way is because God means something good for you. And I declare to you, trust him in the middle of it. Trust him. Test the doctrines. Test them. There's so much more to say, and I have zero time. So, the only way that believers can progress in spiritual maturity is through the life-giving, life-transforming application of the Word of God in their lives. You must read, study, memorize, meditate on, apply the Bible's truths to every area of your life. You are being transformed. As you do that, you're being transformed into the image of God. And such maturity happens in you by the Spirit of God. You have a responsibility to obey the Lord, but you need to trust that the desire to obey comes from the Spirit of God and the means to obey comes from the Spirit of God and the blessings of such obedience come to you from the Spirit of God as well. Give yourself to Him. Submit yourself to the Lord. And as you grow in your sanctification, the goal for all believers must be to become spiritual fathers and mothers. Those kind of men and women who are characterized by an intimate communion with God. They're being transformed Jesus and his high priestly prayer desired for believers to know God as he knew the Father. Not in some superficial way, not in some academic way only that we've arrived at these doctrines, but in supernatural spirit-birthed intimacy. In that way, which is made possible only by a lifetime of obedience to God and to his word. It's to commit yourself. A maturing faith provides assurances of faith for believers along the way. I'll leave you with this. As, as saints live, we are bound to obey the mandate that we see in 2 Peter 3.18, that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us be a growing people. And I want you to understand and hopefully it's been conveyed, that John writes with a father's heart here. There's no deeper desire for John in this moment of writing than that the people be a maturing people. In a small way, I'm certainly no apostle, but I want you to know that I and the pastors alongside me here feel the very same way about you. We want you to be a maturing people, a growing people. We want you to follow the Lord day in and day out, to trust the doctrines, to seek to understand him more fully, to trust the Spirit, amen, to grow you and to mature you.
so that you can live a life that glorifies the Lord. Again, a maturing faith provides assurances of faith for believers along the way. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. We ask that you would help us to believe it and to live it. God, we thank you that you have granted to us your spirit that we might mature as believers. Lord, we praise you that among us now even, there are spiritual children here. Men and women, boys and girls who have come to know Christ, come to know God through Christ. They have peace, they have joy, they have the presence of new desires. Father, I ask that you would continue to mature them as they work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. That they would go on to be spiritual young men and young women who I praise you again, we have among us here. Those kind of men and women who are overcoming the evil one. Who are becoming strong because they know your word. They're putting to death their own sinfulness. They're taking your word seriously. They're seeking out the truths of your word. They're growing in them. And in all of that, they're growing in their understanding of how to apply them to their lives each day. Lord, would you continue to mature them by your spirit that they might become spiritual fathers who, again, we praise you that we have among us here spiritual men and women who know the one who is from the beginning. They have tested these doctrines over many years. They're seeing the goodness of God at work in their lives through trials and tribulations, through sufferings and persecutions and pain and loss. They can testify. The Lord is good and his faithfulness endures to all generations. Lord, we need more men and women like this among us. Can help mature us in the faith. Lord, would you give them a heart to surround themselves with other young men and women, other spiritual children, to be a part of their discipleship? Help them to not think, to be so deceived by Satan to think that their race is finished. It is not. They've just reached a new season of their life, new efforts. Lord, would you help them to give themselves to those things? Father, we pray those things so that we might all arrive in heaven's court on the day of Jesus Christ. We might finish this race well, which you have granted to us. And so, Lord, now we commit ourselves to a time of response, and we ask that you would reveal to us sinfulness, reveal to us uh, desires of selfishness and ways that we have sought not to grow or haven't cared about growing or have thought that theology and doctrine are just for those people over there. They're not for me or whatever they may be. Would you help us now to assess where we are, to know what our next steps are? Would you help us by your spirit to have a deeper, stronger desire for Christ And Lord, I do pray for any of those among us today who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Would you draw them to yourself? That they might call on the name of the Lord in saving faith. I ask you to spend just a moment praying now, seeking the Lord, committing yourself to him. If there's something from this text, that required new belief for you or repentance for you, a new obedience for you that you haven't yet considered, I ask that you would seek the Lord in those things now. Trust that the Spirit would guide you.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. By him we are saved from our sins. We thank you for our Spirit of God, which grants us new life in Jesus. That same Spirit who raises us from spiritual death unto spiritual life now guides us each moment. And so I ask that you would reveal your word to us today, that you would help us to respond in obedience and faith. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.